You know, a few years ago, <clears throat> I found myself in Taupo. I was debilitated, had an injury, and I literally couldn't move for a few weeks. I was in bed and uh, literally couldn't move. So physically, I was extremely weak. But you know what? When you're on your back, you don't have much to do other than pray, right? And to read. And so I was spending a lot of time with the Lord. And when I fell asleep one time, I, I had this very vivid dream. And in my dream, I was standing in the hallway, and there was a shadowy figure down the hallway, and I knew instantly there was something wrong with this figure. I said, I know who you are. And he turned around at me, and I said, you're the devil. And I ran at him, and I grabbed him by the, sh- the shirt, and I started running him to the exit. But he forcefully stopped me part way as we went past the doorway, and he said, look in here. And I looked in, and there were Christians countless Christians at this huge banquet. It wasn't a banquet in heaven, it was a banquet on earth. And they were feasting and laughing and drinking and just having a whole bunch of fun. And and you know what he said to me? He said, just go in there and relax. Just go in there and relax. And I took hold of him and I ran him out that door and and I cast him out of that house. And then I woke up and I thought, wow, And it hit me instantly that we live in a world today where most Christians are asleep. And and Satan's got them exactly where he wants them. They're feasting. They're having fun. But they're completely ineffective for God. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Turn with me to that. First Peter 4 verse 7, we read this this morning at the prayer meeting. The end of all things is near. Now let me ask you a question, because the next verse is therefore. You see, if someone said to you, if God said, I want you to finish the sentence for me, I'm going to put it in the Bible, and it starts off with, the end of all things is near, therefore, I wonder what you'd put in. The world's about to end. The whole universe is about to finish. Hell's coming. The end of all things is near. Therefore, what's the absolute most important thing you could possibly write? He says this, Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can what? So you can pray. I'm glad I didn't write this because I would have probably said the the end of all things is near. Therefore, get out and start witnessing. Therefore, go and do good works or whatever it is that God says, yeah, all that's great, great stuff, but prayer is the most important thing you can possibly do. Why? Because it's the most effective weapon, along with the Word of God, against the enemy. Now in 2 Peter 1 verse 8, it's a sobering verse, it says that Christians can be unproductive and ineffective in their knowledge of Christ. We're going to have some frank things to say this morning, and I want to ask you up front, are you unproductive and ineffective in your knowledge of Christ? You see, you can know Jesus Christ, you can have him in your life, but that knowledge can be completely unproductive. I've known people that have come through this church, they've come through other churches I've been part of over the years, they know more about the Bible than I ever will. But in terms of their fruit, it's zero. And all they do is they criticise because they know the word. 
unproductive and ineffective in their knowledge of Christ. So I was praying about this morning. I was saying, Lord, you really want me to talk about this? Because I know that if I talk about this, I'm going to have to counter it myself this week in the spiritual realm. I've had that had last night, right, Janine? Had all sorts of things. But you know, it's important to talk about today because I'm convinced that the reason we don't see revival in our own lives and in church is because we're unproductive, we're ineffective, and we're oblivious of what we're actually part of in terms of a spiritual war. Many of us are content with attending church, but don't push us, don't get us uncomfortable, don't get us opening up with each other, don't tell us we've got to come to a prayer meeting. By the way, we had a few more people there this morning. That was a good start. I think we had about 10. That's not too bad. But in all seriousness, guys, for me, that is the barometer of where you are at spiritually. I'm sorry, but that's, that's the end of it. Oh, but I've got to do this. I've got to get... I'm sorry. I didn't see it any other way. The barometer of your spiritual life is your prayer life. You will never be greater than your prayer life. The reasons we don't see personal and corporate revival are plenty. Sin, unforgiveness, lack of repentance, lack of prayer. Lack of freedom is an interesting one. Do you know you're in a unique church here? When you look at every major revival that's ever happened, every true major revival that's ever happened, it's always happened outside of church hierarchy. You'll never find in church history a major revival that's come down from a priest or has come down from the church hierarchy. No, it's never happened that way. God said, I don't work through hierarchies. I'm sorry. I work through people on their knees. And we, in this church, the thing I love about this place is no one has a bone to pick. No one's got some agenda. We just want to know God. And there is total freedom here to get on our knees and say, God, what do you want to do through us as a people? But why is it we don't see major revival? We're going to focus on one reason today. How do we put it nicely? The reason we don't see revival is, who's a soldier, by the way, in in God's army? I'm sorry to tell you, but the reason we don't see revival is that as far as soldiers go, we in the church in general, are the dumbest soldiers possibly meet. i got to tell you, we are the dumbest, most ineffective soldiers you could possibly meet. We're untrained. We're unfocused. We're uncommitted. We don't even know we're in a war, half of us. What kind of soldier doesn't even know they're in a war? The enemy has us right where he wants us. So today we're going to look at how to engage in spiritual warfare. You might say, that sounds a bit scary. I don't really like talking about that. Well, I'm sorry, but you're actually in a war. And I'm sure there were many soldiers in World War II who were in the middle of the battle were like, hey, I want out. Can I, can I go home now, please? But it's too late. They'd already enlisted. They were in the war. And you're in the war. You're in the war. They had a job to do and so do you. Let's have a look at Ephesians chapter 6. 
We know this passage well, but I want us to read it. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. If you've got a pen or a notebook, you should be writing these things down because you're going to get some practical tips soon. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. You see, I want to tell you this morning that the moment you became a Christian, you stuck out like a sore thumb. You see, the world that you live in, I hate to tell you, actually belongs to Satan. He is called the prince of the power of the air. You remember when Jesus was getting tempted and Satan said, just worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Jesus didn't say, well, you have no right to do that. He does have the right to do it for a time. Jesus is coming back, don't get me wrong, but right now, this is actually Satan's kingdom. And so the moment that you became a citizen of heaven, which is what the Bible says when you give your life to Christ, you stuck out. You're on foreign territory. You're no longer wanted. And Satan sees you and says, we've got to take that guy out. I love it how Paul in Ephesians 6 used the analogy of a soldier. He could have used a lot of analogies to define what it's like, right? He could have used the analogy of a lawyer. That would have been pretty boring. What kind of suit would you put on and things? He could have used the analogy of a nurse or whatever. No, he gave the analogy of a soldier. Why? Because we're in a war. But we don't get it. I honestly believe half of us have absolutely no idea of what I'm talking about this morning. We're like, yeah, and I understand it, but you don't live it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Satan has two overall strategies. The first one is what I call his hidden strategy. He would prefer that you don't know or believe he exists and you're not in a war at all. Colossians 1.13 says that his kingdom is a kingdom of darkness. It's always in the shadows. It's always underneath stuff. It's always, it's always hidden. He doesn't want you to realise he has a part in your life far greater than you might even understand. But you see, when Jesus came into the world, he said, I am what? The light of the world. He doesn't hide stuff. Satan hides Jesus brings everything out into the light. And I'll tell you what, in your life, as the light shines brighter, as you seek God, as the light shines brighter, more, more will be revealed. And Satan will be flushed out from the rock he hides under. You know, he has a lot of distractions, a lot of things he tries in his hidden strategy. Who finds it hard sometimes to get into the Bible? <laughs> his greatest strategy is to avoid the greatest weapon. If he can stop you getting into the weapon, as Katie talked about, as Jacob talked about, he will do everything he possibly can. He'll make you think, oh, it's just, it's just the Bible. What can it really do? I haven't read it for a week. You know, what, what change can it really make? Harry, does it make a change? Yeah. It makes a change, right? <laughs> 
The word of God is one of the most powerful things, and the enemy is terrified of it. What did Jesus use when he confronted Satan? What did he use? He used the word of God. Direct quotes from the word of God. And he didn't have to try twice, by the way. Each time Satan said something, he just gave one verse, and that's all it took. Distraction from engaging in the word is one big one. Keeping you busy doing stuff is another, right? Even serving God. Keep, keep, make sure you are so busy serving God, you've got no time for the Word of God. You've got no time for prayer. Of course, he entices us to temptation, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, talking about how to overcome that. He brings friction in relationships, deceitfulness of wealth. He makes you content. You know another one? Is he makes you think this is as good as it gets. He makes you think all those things you read about in the Bible, well, yeah, that was for years ago, but not for now. This is as good as it gets. Another classic one is the Holy Spirit convicts that Satan condemns. And one of the tricks he uses is he whispers in your ear, you've screwed up one too many times. You fell over in that sin again. You're, you're useless. Don't go, don't go praying. God doesn't want to hear you. That's the filthy liar as he is. But that's not what God says. He says that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just and will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say, confess your sins and then give it three weeks and we'll see how we're doing. He says, no, you confess your sins, boom, you're holy. And I can use you right now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to listen to those lies. That's what Satan tries to make you believe. He'll introduce you to the occult. This is a biggie. There are so many people watching movies, oblivious that doors are being opened in their life. Things are happening that they just do not understand. If you've been into anything watching movies that have the occult, if you've looked at horoscopes, if you've been into yoga, if you've been into all those sort of things, you may think, oh, isn't it all harmless? Really? It's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. It opens a major door, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Open any door you can for him, and he will enter. If he can't do the hidden strategy, if that's not working, he'll try the overt strategy. Maybe you've encountered it. It's when he turns up, tries to do things to scare you, and that's pretty much what it is. It's just scare tactics. I've had to deal with that recently in our own home. It's just... It's pathetic. It's not even worth my breath explaining it to you. Because he's so weak. He's got nothing. That's all he can do. My God is the God who made him. And he can destroy him like that. And he will. Don't be scared of those scary tactics. His aim is always the same. It's to undermine the plan of God. Remember it started in the Garden of Eden? How did he undermine the plan of God in the Garden of Eden? What did he do? (laughs) Did God really mean that? I don't care who you are, I don't care how bright you are, you will never convince me that God does not mean what he says in this book. And when I stand before God one day, I'd rather say to him, God, you wrote it. 
I just believed it. I believed the word of God 100%. But the enemy would always say, hmm, maybe God didn't really mean what he said. You know, Satan continues right through the Old Testament trying to undermine the plan of God. When it came to Jesus himself, he tried numerous times to stop Jesus coming into the world. And then when he did, he tried to kill him many times. You go through the scriptures and read the number of times that people tried to kill Jesus. You'll be astounded. He tried to stop him going to the cross. Satan's got this problem, right? On the one hand, he wants to stop the plan of God. On the other hand, he absolutely hates God. And so you see this 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 sort of struggle he has through Jesus' life of trying to kill him and then trying to stop him going to the cross. And then, of course, when he gets to the cross, just laying it all out. And you read in the Old Testament, when Jesus hung on the cross, it talks about the bulls of Bashan surrounding Christ on the cross. If you ever looked into that, it would be interesting if you haven't. But basically it's describing a demonic realm that surrounded Jesus. You think he just went through physical suffering? Man, he was encountering things we could not even understand. Satan hates them. We see right throughout the Bible, Satan had so many different techniques. In Genesis 6, it's a whole topic on its own, but he had angels interbreed with humans. Why? To try and stop there being a pure line for the Messiah to come. They came again after that. And, and uh, Joshua, of course, had to deal with that when he went into the Promised Land, had to wipe them out. Satan tried to wipe out the Jews with genocide many times. Times of Esther. When Jesus was born, he had the young kids murdered. Remember that? And he tempted Jesus not to go through with the crucifixion. I love 1 John 3, verse 8, though, that says, The reason, the reason Jesus came into the world was to destroy the works of Satan. I love that. He didn't just come to annoy him. He didn't come to to do some good works. He came to absolutely obliterate the enemy. I love that. He's a mighty God. He's a mighty king. He didn't come half-hearted. And you know what? He did it single-handedly. That's SAS extreme, eh? He was in there. He said, forget the rest of them, guys. I'm on my own here. I'm going to take this guy out completely. And that's why when it said, when Jesus came in the world, it said the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Wow. No wonder the demons tremble when they, when he walked along. They screamed out. What have you come to do with us, they said. They knew Jesus was completely in charge and held their very destiny in his hand. Astounding. The enemy, though, never gave up trying to destroy the Lord. And he won't give up on you. You know, Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. You ever pondered that? Satan had to request. You see, God allows Satan to roam the earth and and, and to go so far, but there are times that he has to seek permission. We read about it in Job when the angels had to come and present themselves before God, including Satan himself. And he had to ask for permission to do anything to Job. God allows the enemy to do things in this world. And Satan had asked to sift Peter as wheat. We'll come back to that. 
But before we start talking about how to conquer temptation in your life, I want us to just think about a couple of things that if we haven't got this sorted out, you won't even get off the ground. The first thing I want you to write down if you're writing these notes is this. God wants you completely and utterly sold out for him. We've talked before around the story of Elijah on the mountain. Remember that when he had all the the prophets of Baal? And we've talked about that from one perspective, but I want to briefly mention another perspective that I believe the Lord has has just laid upon my heart for this morning. It's this. Just imagine there is Elijah on the top of the mountain and he's he's set up that, that sacrifice and he tells the people to pour water on it. Remember that? They pour seven times and they saturate this sacrifice. And the context is this, that when Elijah turns up, everything is dry. It hasn't rained for three and a half years. You can imagine the dust would just be, as they walk along, the dust would be coming up. There's dryness. There's no life. There's nothing. And, and they ma- have a, a match-off against the, the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God. And of course, the prophets of Baal try and get their sacrifice turned up. It doesn't work. But then Elijah turns up. And he stands in front of this sacrifice that's absolutely saturated. There's no hope for it to come into fire. There's no hope. It's living in dryness, but it's been so saturated by by the water that there's no way it could catch fire. But Elijah steps forward and he calls down fire from where? From heaven. And the fire comes down upon the sacrifice and it doesn't just burn up the sacrifice, it burns up the water, it burns up the rocks, it scorches the ground around it. This thing is completely and utterly consumed. There's nothing left of it. And only after that, Elijah goes off and starts praying for the reign of revival. And he doesn't just have a five minute prayer meeting. He doesn't just go over and say, well, let's just have a little bit of prayer for some rain. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, we'll come back next week. No, he didn't do that. He got down seven times on the ground and cried out to God for the rain. And the rain came. And not only did it come, it came in floods. And it poured down upon that dry ground. You can just imagine the dust starting to just float away and then eventually it just starts to get into all the cracks and it starts to moisten the soil. Why am I talking to you about this? I'm telling you this because I believe in Romans 12 verse 2 it says that you must present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, but there's more than that. I believe many of us are living a life right now that is full of dryness around us. It's just dust. There hasn't been any rain for a long time. And there you are on this this altar. And you're so saturated with the world, there's no hope of anyone catching fire. And you know, when Elijah stood there, the only person prepared to pray for fire from heaven, everyone else stood around him as unbelievers. That ain't going to happen, they said. I know it was in their hearts, right? They were just sceptical. And there we are on that altar. But you know what we need to do? We need to say, Lord, like Elijah did, Lord... Bring your fire from heaven. I am cold. I am saturated by the world. I'm full of dryness. There's no hope of anything. But I know when the fire revival comes down from heaven, it will scorch me up. It will burn me up completely. And I want to tell you this morning, if you have the fire of revival in you, you'll be praying. 
You'll run to the prayer meeting like Elijah did. You won't give up on your people who don't know God. You won't give up on the dryness around you. You'll be calling out to God not only seven times but 70 times seven and saying, God, I'm not going to give up. I'm not leaving you. I'm going to hold on to you until your rain comes down from heaven. But if you haven't been consumed by the fire of God, you're never going to get on your knees and pray for the revival. And if you're not at that place, I'm going to tell you this morning, on God's word, you will fall into temptation if you're not completely consumed at the altar. You can do anything you like, but you catch the fire of prayer and the enemy is terrified. The second thing is this, to emphasise the first, without a radical prayer life, you'll do nothing radical. Without a a radical prayer life, you'll do nothing radical. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember what happened? He had his disciples there and he said, pray, why? That you won't fall asleep and fall into temptation. Just picture the scene. The most important couple of hours in entire humanity. The man who's come into the world to save us. And he says to his best mates, listen, can you just pray? I've told you just recently I'm about to be killed. You don't think it would be too hard here to kind of pray and keep watch with me? He goes off and he pours his heart out. The guy comes back. What are they doing? They're sleeping. Oh, man. This is, imagine you, if, if it was you dying on the cross and your best efforts were left with a bunch of guys who fell asleep at your most important hour and all forsook you, even the guy who said he wouldn't. Oh, boy. Only God could resolve that problem, eh? Peter had no idea what he was up for. Jesus had said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you as wheat. Jesus was at the most critical moment of his entire life and what was he doing? He was praying because he knew what trial was about to come. Peter and the disciples had no idea they were about to have the most important time in their life and what were they doing? Sleeping. Because they didn't pray, they didn't stand. I want to tell you this morning that unless you kneel with God, you'll never stand with God. You hear me? You can't stand with God if you don't kneel with God. I had on my heart this week as I was thinking about this story, if those men had truly kept watch with Christ, I think he would have said not only will you keep watch with me, but will you weep with me? And if they've wept with him, he would have said, and now will you die with me? You see, you can't die with Christ unless you're weeping with him and you can't weep with him unless you're praying with him. You say, oh, I'm not that emotional. It's not about that. It's not about emotion. It's about having the heartbeat of God. You say, what's the point of prayer? The more you pray, the more it becomes something where you not only know God has a heart, you feel his heart. You start praying his heart. And those disciples missed it that day. Imagine if they'd got it. <laughs> well, I want us to get practical. Can we keep going? I know we're running a little late. Is this okay? I want to talk about some aspects to, to spiritual warfare. 
And I believe if you grasp hold of this, you will cause ripples through the, the spiritual realm. We talked a bit about this on our Monday night group. But one of the biggest reasons I believe that people fail to live a victorious life is they continually fall into sin. They get stuck in the cycle of living at Calvary. Now don't get me wrong, please. We worship the Lord. We remember Him every week. But what I mean is this. They live a cycle of sinning and repentance and sinning and repentance and sinning and repentance. We see that, right? We see that in our own lives. But there's many people who Satan's got them exactly where he wants. He just keeps hitting that same button over and over again and you fall and fall and feel condemned. And so we live at Calvary and not at Pentecost. Well, let's have a look at how we actually break free from this. Who wants to know how to break free from that? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's have a look at that together. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You see, the first thing is we must realise that when we look at others who seem to be walking with God we have to realise that they are suffering the same temptations as you are. I've got news for you, you're not a special case. You're not unique. You're not someone who's overwhelmed with temptation in a way that other people are not. We suffer the same temptations. But the question is, why do some overcome and others do not? Well, the first thing we need to realise is it says... When, we, when we're tempted, there's two ways you can approach things. You can either just dismiss it because you're walking with God and, and you can just dismiss those thoughts and, and not fall. Or it says you can be seized by it. The word seized actually means to be overcome. It's like, it's like if you had to fight someone who's just way too powerful for you and there's nothing you can do about it. They overcome you by their strength. Well, if you feel powerless today towards sin and defeated, there's some things we need to understand. The first thing from these verses is this. You have to realise that what you're facing is not anything new. That's the first thing. We've said that. The second thing, though, is God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, I can hear some of you saying, well, wait a minute. If he's not tempting me beyond what I can bear, then how come I'm falling into temptation? Doesn't that, by logical definition, mean I'm being tempted beyond what I can bear? Well, in order to answer this, we need to understand the third point, and it's this. God promises that he'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. You see, to take your stand against temptation, you have to actually take hold of the way that God has given you to get out of temptation. It's not a passive rescue. It's a resistance against the enemy. If Jake came up and started pushing me, unless I'm pushing back, I'm going to fall over. I have to actually push back against what I'm getting tempted from. And if you are taking an approach at the moment where you're getting tempted and you just kind of cower down and fall into it, that's not what the Bible says to do. That's unscriptural. 
So how do we do it? Well, the first thing is this. James chapter 4, verse 7, a key verse. If you're not into highlighting in the Bible, highlight this one. James chapter 4, verse 7. This is the way out. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The first thing you should do, let's just think about it, think about whatever it is that you seem to struggle with in temptation. There you are in that moment, whether you're alone or not, and you're suddenly struggling with that temptation. What's the first thing you do? The first thing you do is submit yourselves to God. You know what I do in that moment? I speak out loud so all spiritual realms can hear me, and I say, God, right now, this is your body, Romans 12 says, I'm offering my body to you, Lord. I'm submitting to your lordship. This mind is yours, this body is yours, Lord. That's as simple as that. That is submitting to God in that moment of temptation. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. But the second thing is this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we do that? Resisting is not passive. How do we do it? The first thing is this, and Jesus gave us the example. We must quote scripture at the enemy. Let me tell you something. The enemy doesn't read your thoughts. If you're in a situation of temptation and you're trying to trying to battle things inside your mind, you ain't any good to anybody. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus spoke out the word of God as a sword. And when we recognize that the word of God is a weapon we will start to see the effectiveness of that weapon. You know what I often do? There's a favourite verse of mine. And it's in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And when I suffer temptation or I feel that there is a darkness that seems to be trying to creep in, I read it out loud. You know what it says? It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown, they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And all the people said? Amen. time recently in my study where I had a presence in my room. won't go into details. But you know what I did? I picked up the Bible and I said, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and I read that out about four times, getting louder and louder, until I realised it was actually getting a little bit frustrated with the truth it was hearing, and it was gone. Completely gone. You're, and you're sitting there going, oh, I don't know if we should get into this kind of thing. Is that scriptural? Yes, it is scriptural. Jesus did it. Hello. He gave us the model for it. And what I find is you don't need to know all the exact verses to give for each type of temptation. Show me one part of this that's not the sword of the Spirit. And when you quote scripture at the enemy, he hates it. He can't handle it. He cannot handle it. The second thing is you dive into prayer. When you quote the scripture, then you, you just submit again to God, say, Lord, I'm calling on your name to be here. But we need to be in the word of God, people. If you're not in the word of God, you won't be able to stand at that moment. You might say, oh, it's just all these temptations, it's more just you know, how I'm thinking and, and it's not really the enemy. Really? Do you know what First Peter 5 verse 8 says? It says, be self-controlled and alert 
For your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lamb. No, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's looking for you. I'm sorry, but that's what the Bible says. He wants to completely destroy you. He wants to destroy your, your holiness. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your job. He wants to destroy your family, your finances. Everything he can to stop you from being productive and effective in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. But I love it how it says in 1 Peter 5, verse 9, Resist him, standing firm, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I love that. You're not alone. You're not alone. So what's the first thing we do when we uh, are suffering temptation? What's the first thing? Submit to God. What's the second thing? Resist the devil. As we finish for the next few minutes or so, though, I want to talk about something else. You might be putting in place some good habits around resisting temptation. You might be in the Word of God. You might be doing everything that you need to be doing, but you're still falling. You know, some years ago when I was uh, into running in a big way, I remember I ran a half marathon in Taupo, and I was, I was pretty fit, actually. I was hoping for a pretty good time, and I'd done about 16 kilometres... And I was going at you know, really good speed. And then suddenly, I just got this major cramp in my thigh. And everything else about me was fine. I was ready to run the race. I wanted to finish it. I was on track. And, I, and it crippled me. I just had to walk. And, and all the people on the sideline, they didn't know that. They just thought I was you know, really struggling. And they were patting me on the back going, Come on, man, you can keep going. You can keep going. I just was so frustrated because everything in me just wanted to just keep running. But I couldn't. I literally couldn't do it. And maybe that's you today, that everything in you, you're doing everything you think you need to do, but you're still falling over. Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27 says, Do not give the devil a foothold into your life. You see, through temptation, submitting to it too much, getting into things we shouldn't, like the occult or whatever it might be, we can end up not only falling into temptation, but we can be overcome and held as a prisoner. You see, the analogy is like this. In the war, there were soldiers, but even soldiers got captured. And when they were captured, they were put into a prisoner of war camp, and they had their weapons taken away. They became malnourished. They couldn't get themselves out of it. They were stuck. They were still soldiers. There's nothing they could do about it. They were held captive within the battle within which they were in. And I believe it's the same with believers today. There's many people who are soldiers, but they allow themselves to be overcome and find themselves where they've given the devil a foothold and they just can't get out. And here's the test for you. If you're in the Word of God, regularly, daily, meditating on the Word, and, and you're in the Lord's presence in prayer, but you still just cannot resist falling into temptation. That same thing that gets you over and over again. I want to suggest to you this morning on God's Word that you've given the devil a foothold into your life. 
You know, there's so much debate by Christians today. All believers can't have a, a demon. Well, unfortunately, in our Bibles that we have today, there is a mistranslation. It's a very obvious one. It says that it talks about demon possession. When you become a Christian, who are you possessed by? The Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 14. His Holy Spirit is given to you as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You cannot be possessed by the enemy when you become a Christian. But that's not the translation in the Bible. The actual Greek word is a word in the Greek which means basically to come under the influence or power of. That's what it means. Is that right, Peter? That's about the right translation. To come under the influence or power of. And when you give the devil a foothold and allow entrance into your life, you can actually find yourself under the influence. It's like you're almost, in a sense, you know, under the influence of alcohol is, is what jumps to mind. It's that thing where you're doing things you don't want to do, but you, you've, you've had a bit too much to drink, and now you're under the influence. It's a similar sort of thing. The word foothold in the Greek actually means to give a place, a portion, to inhabit. And in your life, you can give the devil a place, a portion, to inhabit. And we can have the appearance of godliness but allow the enemy to have control or inhabit parts of our life. Oh, does that mean he's in our body? Look, I really don't know. I don't understand all that stuff. I know we're a complex being. We're body, we're soul, we're spirit, we're mind. But when you give him a place, you know where you're falling. Despite whatever you do in God's word, if you continue to fall, you have given him a place in your life. I know people who have been at this church and at other churches who I see today, they are still struggling in the very same sin they were struggling with 10 years ago. Who spoke with me, I remember one about six years ago, a guy who, who met with Simon and I and we, we talked about uh, this whole concept with him and said, we need to pray for you that this foothold will be gone that the enemy will no longer have control. I don't believe in that. Well, we don't see any other way out of this, my friend, because that's what we see in your life. He didn't believe it. He left. And lo and behold, what's he doing today? Exactly the same thing. He got so depressed, he told me he was thinking of taking his life because he couldn't conquer this temptation. But he refused to believe the scripture that says, do not give the devil a foothold. You see, my question today is this. What's the point of passages that tell us to resist the devil and not give him a foothold if it were not for the fact that we can give him a foothold? <laughs> Might be my lawyer brain of me, but I kind of struggle with how we see that. What, what's the point of passages that tell us we're in a war and we must take up our armour if it was not for the fact that we'd live defeated without it? So where do we go from here today? Well, I believe this message is one that the devil does not want us to talk about today. I believe it's one that even some of us today are still a little bit confused about. But two things we've learned. We've learned some techniques to stand against the enemy, submit to God, resist the devil. But we've also learned that there could be something deeper going on. And you might be saying, well, what happens? How do I actually address that problem? Well, all you need to do is stand on the Word of God. The principle is still the same. 
And if you're finding there's an area in your life that you cannot overcome, then you can take a stand on the authority of God's word and have the enemy leave from your life. You can stand and the very first thing to do is to say, God, I realise I'm falling over and over and over into this sin. So the first thing I do is I submit to God. Lord, you are Lord of my body. You are Lord of my mind. I submit myself to you. And now on the authority of God's word, I say to you, Satan, get out of my life. And name whatever it is that you're falling into. Because that is most likely the spirit that is having an influence in your life. Name it and tell it to leave in Jesus' name. It's as simple as that. Does that mean something weird's going to happen? Probably not. Sometimes, probably not though. And then get into the Word of God and realise you are free. You're no longer a prisoner of war. You're back on the battleground. You know, I believe as we finish today, I want to tell you one thing. I think too many Christians are living lives that it's that picture of being in a trench in the, in the war and they are just basically defending themselves. <laughs> they're living in defence. All the, all the bullets are coming, all the shrapnel's coming and they're just cowering in there in the trench saying as long as we're safe in this trench, we're going to be okay. But I'm not happy with that. I'm not happy with that in this church and I'm not happy with that in my own life. You see, what I want to see is us getting out of that trench and running to the next one, reclaiming the ground that the enemy has taken. Those are the kind of believers the enemy's terrified about. He doesn't care if you stay in a trench. He doesn't want you to get out. He doesn't want you to start getting onto that battlefield and reclaiming that ground for God. But that's what we're called to do.